When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hey nerds, welcome to episode 512 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today and... I was so delighted to get to have this conversation and honored and it was um, just a really, really inspiring uh, few, you know, about an hour or so that I got to to spend with the author who is on today's podcast, which is Robert Jones Jr. Uh, Robert's new book, The Prophets, uh, came out last week and it is getting just rave reviews from the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, the Los Angeles Times, just anywhere they're reviewing books. His book is getting highlighted as potentially a, a book of the year. And when you read it, you'll you'll know why. His writing is the closest thing to Toni Morrison I have ever read. And it is just beautiful and heartbreaking and everything you want a book to be. Um, we get into everything that this, the story is about. The, at the heart of the story is two enslaved men who are in love on a plantation in the South um, and how their lives affect kind of everyone around them. And you'll hear uh, Robert and I talk about it for a while. But we also, um, we recorded this on Thursday, January 7th the day after um, right-wing terrorists went into the Capitol and um, cut, you know, there was a lot of through line between his book and the slavery that he writes about and the ideals and things that um, were on display in Washington, D.C. So we talk a little bit about that as well. So, you know, there's trigger warning for slavery and uh, conversations uh, about politics. So I wanted to put that out there, but it's really important and we didn't want to pretend like things weren't happening while we were having our conversation. So just wanted to let you know. Um, but I really hope you'll take a listen to this conversation and I really, really hope you'll read this book. Um, it is just fascinating and beautiful, like I said, beautiful and I can't say enough good things. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, if you have feedback on this or any episode, of course, you can always find us on Twitter or Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can always email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. And you can find all of our episodes at ProfessionalBookNerds.com. There's a search bar up there. You can just search for any author or genre or book. Um, and if we've talked about it or had them on the podcast, you'll find an episode with them there. Um, I think that's everything. Um, thank you guys so much for, for listening. If you uh, appreciate and enjoy the podcast, you can always you know rate and review us on iTunes and all that good stuff. Um, or just send us an email. We'll give you some more book recommendations. Always happy to do that. Okay. I hope you guys enjoy this truly wonderful conversation with Robert Jones Jr. on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. 
would you like to kick us off by letting our listeners know a little bit about The Prophets? Sure. The Prophets is a story about Samuel and Isaiah. They are two enslaved young men on a plantation in antebellum, Mississippi, and they are in love. And that love transforms, angers, inspires, um, makes envious all of the people around them enslaved or otherwise. In addition, I go a little, I go back a little bit further to um, a pre-colonial African society where there are also two young men in love and sort of mirror um, Samuel and Isaiah's love in a way so that there's an echo, not only across generations, but across oceans. Um, and the prophets is my attempt to reinscribe into the cultural and historical narrative, the black queer figure who has been largely either ignored or erased. There's so much I want to ask you about this this book. I it, without exaggeration, took my breath away. Just mm -hmm. your your writing and, and the story you tell, and and something I, I guess a good place to start is with Samuel and Isaiah because they they're love as you said it affects everyone around them to some way whether it's just people having a thought about the quote-unquote two of them or wanting to pull them apart or whatever it is but from the beginning they kind of see the world differently even though they're so intertwined and so connected they really do have kind of two differing views about the world around them. And so how important was it for you to create them as two separate identities? Because they are so frequently referred to as the two of them and kind of like pushed together, but they very much are separate, um, you know, people and separate, they have different points of view. That's absolutely right. It was clear to me that Okay, I had to think about, you're already a black person living in a racist society mm -hmm. uh, and you're enslaved because of the color of your skin. What would the additional burden of queerness or what we now call queerness mean for the both of you? How would it um, affect how you love one another? How would it affect how you react to, to other people? What would be um, its impact on how you feel about escaping your conditions. And Samuel is the character that came to me first, actually, mm -hmm. of, of all the characters in the book, as a result of a um, project that Stacey Derasmo, when I was in the MFA program at Brooklyn College, gave us. She told us to go out in the world and find objects that a character or um, a, uh, from a novel or a story we're working on would possess. And I found a pair of shackles in the garbage cans on the streets. Wow. And when I lifted them and felt the weight of them, I thought this person is enslaved, but they're also strong and they're angry and um, they want to be free. And that was Samuel. And I thought he needs to be in love in this story. And his lover needs to be someone who is deeply in love with him but also different from him and has a different point of view and must reflect a different way. So Samuel's way is aggression and maybe even violence. Isaiah's way is strategy. We have to be patient. Mm -hmm. um, our time is coming, but it can't be 
with bluster. It must be with subterfuge. Um, and when I learned that Samuel was the aggressive one and Isaiah was the strategic one, they sort of wrote themselves. They began to both tell me what their views of the world were and how they were different. Mm -hmm. Do you think you see yourself in either or both of them? I mean, I know that every author I've ever kind of asked a question like this too says, well, I mean, there's a little bit of me in every character I write, but do you see yourself from, you know, cause I know you, you, you've, you have a background of, you know, creating son of Baldwin and, and wrestling with a lot of this. And I've seen a lot of interviews where you talk about your own upbringing and how you, you know, had to be a black gay person in a world that maybe didn't accept that in your family. Like, do you see yourself in Samuel Isaiah or maybe a little bit of both? I, I see myself in both of them. They, mm -hmm. Samuel and Isaiah are the yin and yang of me. Um, mm -hmm. The one end of me that has this drive to um, say, to heck with it all. This is me, this is who I am. Like it or love it, love it or list it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to talk about HGTV. Of course. Um, and then there's another part of me that says, no, you, you have to convince people that you are worthy, that you belong here, that you have a right to exist. And those two sides are often in conflict. Even as I'm on the cusp of turning 50, I still feel this um, conflict. And Samuel and Isaiah play out a lot of um, that internal conflict for me. Um, and it was interesting to see where they took it because I didn't know where it would and mm -hmm. the, these characters sort of led me. Um, so that was interesting, but I do see myself in represented in both of them. Mm -hmm. It's so striking in the novel when, when you talk about you know, their, their love and like you said, kind of half of it saying, like half of them saying we need to you know, justify our existence or prove that we are worthy type of a thing. And then what I love that's so what's so striking about it is that you also have the aspects in back in Africa when sexuality is just much more fluid and it, you love who you love. It's like, it's genuinely, you know, kind of like what Lin-Manuel has been saying for a few years that it kind of, you know, it's on t-shirts everywhere. Love is love. Like, and then I, the rigidity of it in the story that you tell in Mississippi is so like, it's so much more striking there when you, we're crafting this story over the years. Did you always know that you wanted those two mirroring stories or did the aspects of the story in Africa come along a little bit later? The aspects of the story in Africa came later. And it, it's interesting how they, it came about. I had a dream. I woke up in the middle of the night, jotted something down on the notepad I keep next to my bed for just such an occasion. Mm -hmm. um, wrote it in the dark, had no idea what I was writing, woke up the next morning, took the pad, put it down on the desk and came to the computer to enter it in. And I realized that it was a direct address. Mm. It said, you do not yet know us. And I said, what? How do I incorporate a direct address into this story? Mm. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Maybe the ancestors need to be talking directly, not only to the other characters in the book, but directly to the reader. Mm -hmm. And to me, so I started to develop the chapters in which the ancestral voices come in. Mm -hmm. And in writing those chapters, the ancestral voices said once, we have to take you back, not to the beginning, but to where we shall begin. And I said, well, where is that? 
And that is when the idea for going back to colonial Africa, pre-colonial Africa came in because it addressed another um, problem that I was having, which is this idea in many black communities that blackness and queerness are incompatible and that queerness in black people is the result of um, white supremacist trauma Mm -hmm. and white supremacist indoctrination. Um, And that is patently false. What I discovered in my research was that, um, and that research included a lot of oral testimonies, is that pre-colonial Africa did not have these concepts of, um, these particular concepts of gender and sexuality and race that we have here in the West. Mm -hmm. Their concepts were much freer. Um, Esther Arma, who is a Ghanaian um, artist and activist, said that if you said to her grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would say, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. But if you said to them, these two men are in love, they said, ah, yes, love. Mm -hmm. Because for them, sexuality was like the land, according to Arma, it had no boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to sort of attack that idea that um, queerness can only be born of trauma by introducing Kosai and Alewa in pre-colonial Africa in societies that looked at gender and sexuality in completely different ways than we do and did not even understand homophobia or anti-queerness until the Christian missionaries came and started to introduce the ideas of homophobia and such to these African societies. I'm eternally jealous of your ability to have coherent thoughts from your dreams. I also have a, a notepad next to me to jot down things in the middle of the night, but my dreams are like so... I, I tend to have a lot of nightmares and they're very weird. And I'll wake up and I'll look at my notepad and be like, well, that's that's gibberish. I'm, I'm That's amazing that you were able to extract that. That's I love that so much. But um, <laughs> something, uh, something else that I, I was really taken aback by the novel is you know, I, I talked about the, in the beginning of our conversation how Samuel and Isaiah, they, their lives do touch everyone, but you also have in the novel all of these different points of view and these various chapters that are seen through not only their eyes, but also the eyes of, you know, the slave owners and people that work for them in different aspects. And it's kind of a, a two-part question. One, was that structure something that you always wanted, knew you wanted to do? And then kind of the second half was, were any characters or points of view more challenging for you to write as the author? Um, great questions. No, I did not always know that this would be the structure. Mm-hmm. Initially, this book was going to be told completely from Samuel's point of view. But then I realized that I wasn't getting the full story down um, from just his point of view. So then I said, well, it'll be Samuel and Isaiah's point of view. That way I can get another perspective. And yet that still felt incomplete. So I said, well, is there a way for me to give more than two characters um, this uh, narrative and it still feel cohesive? Mm -hmm. So I did some research on other literary works. So I looked at Toni Morrison's Paradise mm-hmm. and I looked at um, Ayanna Mathis's 12 Tribes of Hattie to see how they um, structured their multi-narrative books mm-hmm. and um, did so very successfully. So I said, oh, there is a way to do this. I just have to make sure that the world 
is interconnected so that it, it doesn't feel like these are all separate um, worlds and, 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 and landscapes mm -hmm. that you can still feel that all of these people live in this same um, world. Mm -hmm. But then to answer your other question about difficulty in writing some of these characters, the most difficult character for me to write was Paul Halifax, the mm -hmm. plantation owner, because um, I had to confront something that I did not want to confront, which is that despite his despicable deeds, he too is a human being. Mm -hmm. So I had to find out, okay, he's a human being, but what made him this way? Mm -hmm. What made him such a callous human being? What turns a person into an, a person that looks at another human being and says, I don't see a human being. Right. So that was the most difficult journey I had to take because I had to, what it felt like I was doing was justifying his behavior when it was really just trying to explain it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to walk this fine line um, and not feel guilty about giving him a backstory so that you better understand why he makes the choices that he makes. It's, it's so interesting. You say that just because, you know, before we started recording, we were, we were talking about we're for everyone who's listening, you'll, everyone will hear this on Monday, but we recorded this on Thursday, literally the day after people stormed the Capitol terrorists st stormed the Capitol and tried to, I don't actually know what they were trying to stop because no matter what they would have accomplished, the process that is taking place would have still taken place. But it's very much, it's so interesting, the connection between your story that you wrote over about 13 years, I believe, or so you put this story together. Correct. Um, and while doing so, you're writing a story that takes place on a plantation and then also in Africa, you know, hundreds of years before that, how the through line is still, you know, is it still applicable to the modern day world where we're looking at these people and I'm just staring at them saying, like, I, I, and I mean, I look like them in the sense that I'm a white, straight male person from a, you know, middle-class family and I can't understand. So I can't even imagine writing a character who honestly, Paul, not that dissimilar from these people and trying to write from that point of view. I think you might be a better person than I am for being able to do that. It's so, so impressive. That was a long rambling thing that you don't have to comment on if you don't want to. <laughs> what, what's very interesting about um, the, how contemporary this period piece feels mm -hmm. is that what I realized in writing it was that bigotry of all forms, but in particular um, anti-blackness mm -hmm. is amazingly resilient and not only is it resilient but it it morphs to fit the mores of the time that it's in so for example we we no longer have um enslaved black people working on cotton plantations but we do have what are essentially enslaved black people in the prison industrial complex we no longer have overseers whipping us um, because we're not picking cotton fast enough, but we do have police officers shooting us in the backs, kneeling on our necks and killing us on camera. Um, so while the, the, the pageantry of, of slavery uh, is, is no longer with us, we still have the really um, mind boggling um, institutions that 
maintain those same pathologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that in writing the book that as much as we've progressed, quote unquote, um, is as much as things have remained the same, just with a, a different sheen. That's I, it's so that's so on the nose and so perfectly said because it, you know there's exactly what you said like as for as much as people want to say things have changed like they this is what a lot of the people in this country have always been it's just you know a lot of people like to say things on twitter like they're saying the quiet part loud now or it they've been empowered to show their hatred and racism and bigotry on their shirt and on their sleeve and out loud through a, a bullhorn because the person in charge of the country, quote unquote, is empowering them to do so. And so it, it is so frustrating to me for when people say, I just can't believe this is happening. I just want to like hand them like stamp from the beginning by Dr. Kendi or something and be like, no, look, this has been happening since the creation of this country. Like this, this isn't new. So I, I, that is to me like, the connection between your book and what's happening now is I hope people see that it's so similar just it, because it's different in the sense that we can see it on a TV easier. Now it's, it's always been this. It is. Um, I think the essential problem in America, and maybe this is true of all nation states is that a particular segment of the society believes the myths, mm-hmm. you know, the greatest country in the world, land of the free and the home of the brave, all of the mythology around America, you know, the, um, the, the worshiping of the American flag and, and the Confederate flag and all of these, um, s- the symbolism of these things really hypnotize people in a way where they're able to, um, one, believe that it's true and two, feign or actually be in shock mm-hmm. when the curtains pulled back. And we get to see the nation, which was founded on genocide and enslavement, be what it was from the very beginning. Um, This is not a surprise to Native Americans. It is not a surprise to African Americans. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a surprise to some white people because as James Baldwin would say, they don't know their history. And it's, it's almost not their fault that they don't know their history because the education system refuses to tell them their history. It gives them the PR version but not the truth. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that you say that about it almost not being their fault. Like I've considered myself very, very fortunate and listeners, this has almost become like a joking drinking game. When I bring this up, I'm from Lorraine, Ohio, where Tony Morrison is from. And so I was, it's almost like, um, I actually told Mikhail Jolay last year who wrote um, this book called Hollywood park. I joked with him. We're like, it's almost like how there's those, some cities where when you're born, they like hand you a football when you're a baby. It's almost like it's not, but it's not far off from saying like when you're born in Lorraine, Ohio, they're like, here is beloved or song of Solomon, like read this. And so I feel very fortunate because exactly what you said, like I was, I was raised in a very, um, you know, open, wonderful household, but also the schools that I go to in, that I went to in Lorraine, in Lorraine, Ohio, were like this, the base level you should do is know about this, you know, globally successful once in a generation author who is from here. So we read Toni Morrison before I even appreciated it. Uh-huh. I yeah, and it's just one of those things where like it's very possible that I may have never been handed that 
or a James Baldwin book or a lesson before dying, or, you know, and not understood these things because the education just isn't there for a lot of people, but it's, I know this is not a simple answer and I'm not asking you to, to solve the country in our half hour conversation here, Robert, I promise. <laughs> Something I am really, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, but I don't know. I, do you think you wrote this novel for yourself or for others or for people who may have no um, like seemingly connection to your life? Because like I said, I, I'm a, a white, straight male, but this book touched me in such a way because of just the genuine love that Samuel and I have for each other and all of the things around it. So while you were writing the story, do you think you were writing it for yourself or for someone maybe other? I think I was writing it for someone other. The, the entire time that I was writing this book, I feel I was talking directly to Black communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, the ancestors in the book are talking directly to Black communities and maybe people outside of Black communities. Um, I knew that I had to get the book out of me. Um, so in that sense, I wrote it for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I knew that... Um, its content, um, its language, its sentences, its intention was for the love of Black people in general, Mm -hmm. whether those Black people live in the United States or if they live in Nigeria or if they live in Brazil. I wanted any any of those Black people who picked up that book to feel um, spoken to, Mm -hmm. to feel loved. Um, So yes, I, I, I think I wrote it more than anything for, for other people, for, mm-hmm. for Black people in particular. Yeah. How do you think this novel came out of your, your blog, Son of Baldwin, you're really popular? Like, do you, think, do you think the prophets would have come along had you have never created that? Or do you think that it was integral into the creation of the prophets? Well, I actually started on the prophets before I became Son of Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not the prophets. It was actually called Sing Hannibal Bear Witness. That's what it was initially called. Um, mm-hmm. Hannibal being Isaiah's first name. Mm-hmm. It was going to be Isaiah's name initially. Yeah. Um, but I will say that my interactions on Son of Baldwin definitely influenced how I began to structure and um, um, craft these characters. Mm-hmm. Because it's so wonderful and so rare to be able to speak to Black people from all over the world. I get to understand race and sexuality and gender and disability and class from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking to a Black disabled woman in Zimbabwe or speaking to a Black queer man in Brazil Mm -hmm. utterly blew my mind open and made me think about race and sex and gender in ways that my Western education did not permit. So absolutely, um, having those conversations at Son of Baldwin definitely influenced how I gave shape to some of the characters and some parts of the story and how I added um, complexity and nuance. If you could ask James Baldwin a question, what do you think it would be? Or, ooh, or to turn out of 10 and make you even more frustrated with my question, if he, James Baldwin wrote The Prophets, what do you think he would say? 
Okay, so your first question, mm -hmm. I would ask him, are you proud of me? Mm -hmm. Did I, do I live up to your expectation? Um, am I, do you, do you find my work worthy? Those would be the questions I would ask him. And if I could ask him about the prophets, I would say, please tell me your complete thoughts and feelings about what I wrote here. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Um, what would you have done differently? Um, or are you proud of what I created? That's, I love that so much. So I've never asked anyone that before. I just couldn't not ask the son of Baldwin what, what he would say. Um, okay, last question for you. I, I love these answers and, and everything. And, and I know, as I kind of joke with you before we start recording, I know you're, you're, today's a a, an interview day for you. So I want to give you some time before you go on to your, to your next one. But you know, what do you hope readers take away from reading The Prophets? A renewed sense of humanity. Um, it would be such a blessing. I, I may never know how what impact this book has on people's lives. Even as, as Son of Baldwin, a friend of mine says, you have no idea the impact Son of Baldwin has on people. And I don't, I have no idea. I don't know. Um, but what I hope the prophets does is similar what, to what I hope Son of Baldwin does, that it makes people understand that you're the other person that you're in conversation with or that you're in disagreement with is a person. Mm -hmm. Could you please stop um, stripping them of their humanity? And also, could you please stop harming them? Could you self-reflect, see the ways in which you are doing harm to someone else and stop? And then do something to repair it, create a, a work of art, sing, write down a beautiful line of poetry, Volunteer at a, at a, at a, um, an orphanage or at a um, homeless shelter. Do something that is going to make the world a kinder, gentler, more beautiful place than the condition in which you found it. I hope the prophets move someone to say, you know what? I am not going to say cruel things to transgender people ever again. That black transgender woman that's walking down the street, I am gonna affirm her existence because she exists. If one person does that and I, I find out about it, I'd be done. Um, uh, congratulations. This is the closest you've ever gotten, uh, to, anyone's ever gotten to having me cry on my own podcast. I, Robert, the, the book left me feeling hopeful in a moment in time when very few other things have, I cannot express to you how wonderful this book is. Thank you not only for joining me today, but thank you for this story. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. This was fantastic. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 